It's good. Yeah. The introduction is worthwhile. Yeah. Okay, let's begin. Let the games begin. We got to get out in time for the State of the Union. All right. So. Yeah. The topic. To, the topic for tonight is the career of John Hyrcanus, Yochanan Hyrcanus, or Yochanan Kohen Gadol, who was the son of Simon, who takes the reins in the year 134 and controls the country for almost 31 years, until his death in 104. Now, with the ascendancy of John Hyrcanus, the Hasmoneans adopted the dynastic principle. You could argue that they had already adopted a dynastic principle with his father... And his uncles. After all, Matityahu was the, the leader of the, the zealous revolution. And his sons, Judah, Jonathan, and Simon, all held positions of prominence. But truth be told, Matityahu was over and done with very quickly. And the main figures were his sons. So it's not until the next generation that you could say there's a hereditary dynasty. Why does Yochanan Hyrcanus take over? Only because his father was the leader. That's, that's what we call a hereditary dynasty. Now the backbone of the Hasmonean state was the military. Since the days of Jonathan, there had been a Jewish standing army available to be deployed in combat basically at any time, usually in the service of the imperial leaders of the Seleucid uh, Empire. Uh, not always to fight Jewish wars, but to fight other people's wars. We saw that in the last couple of weeks, that they would go off fighting in Antioch and faraway places at the behest of whoever is the imperial uh, monarch. Simon was the strategos since the year 143, which means that he was officially the head of the national army. And upon independence would mean that he controls uh, the military fate of Judea. John Hyrcanus was the first to hire foreign mercenaries. Unlike his father and his uncles, who were, were leading only fellow Jews into battle, who could be relied upon loyally to fight for their nation, Hyrcanus hired goons from the outside. Why he needed to do that, we'll see soon enough. There was a real, uh, a real need for outside soldiers because there weren't enough available Jews to fight. Um, uh, we're going to get to that. He took it from an illegitimate source. An illegitimate source. Okay, so increased self-confidence led to a policy of conquest. Jewish national territory extended into non-Jewish areas, and the local residents were either expelled or forcibly Judaized. What does it mean to forcibly Judaize someone? He made them convert. Well, what does it mean to convert? Well, take on, become, take on the Jewish laws. So, take on Jewish laws would mean that either they did so uh, willingly in their own private lives, or it was imposed upon them by the state to fulfill the various ritual obligations of the Jew. In fact, that didn't happen. What forcible Judaizing means is basically just circumcision of the men. And then what happens afterwards, do the people actually take on Sabbath observance or you know, dietary law restrictions? Maybe yes and maybe no. It depends to the extent which they feel comfortable in or believe the doctrines of their new faith or to what extent they're threatened with, with bodily harm if they don't comply. But really it just means you've got to get a bris. Apply to the, uh, Shrem, the whole episode there with Brit Mila, and uh, did they adopt anything beyond Brit Mila? Okay, so... Well, the episode of Shrem... Got cut from two different sides. Yeah, well, the, the, the episode of Shrem, which I wrote about a couple of weeks ago in one of my essays, um, 
were for Pashas Vayishlach is seen to us uh, today as an example of uh, barbarism and butchery. We, we skip uh, Genesis chapter 34 as being sort of uh, uh, unpleasant and better, not, better to be overlooked. In Second Temple times, Genesis 34 was seen as proof that the, the Shemites are, are no good uh, fr- fr- today and in the past. It was justification. Well, I, when, I, when I say today, I mean by Second Temple standards. For the people who were, who were, who were discussing, uh, it meant that the Shechemites or the Samaritans are evildoers and deserve their punishment, which is going to be relevant for tonight's talk because we're going to see the destruction of Shechem. It's going to have a basically like, like Sodom was destroyed by God, Shechem is going to be destroyed by John Hercules. Nablus, yes. Nablus is the seat of a lot of problems. A lot of problems. A place that is known for being dangerous. Okay. So, the, uh, under, under uh, Hyrcanus' son, Alexander Yanai, or Alexander Janius, there would be 24 toparchies, or 24 regions of the country, corresponding to the 24 Mishmarot Kuna, the 24 priestly watches. So, the country will expand geographically to a tremendous extent. What had once been the province of Yehud, which was just the nucleus around Jerusalem, is going to expand to the east, across the Jordan River, to the west, basically to the coastline, to the south, which will include Idumea, and to the north, including the Samaritan regions, and eventually even the Galilee, and even to the regions north of the Galilee, uh, to the Golan. So over the span of about 50 years, a tremendous increase in the size of the country. Okay. The Hasmonean dynasty was like the Hellenistic dynasties in that new territory conquered became the property of the ruler. It wasn't conquered for the sake of the nation. It was conquered for the material advancement of the king. That said, there is a, there's a noticeable difference between what the Hellenistic uh, monarchies did and what the Hasmoneans did. The Hasmoneans eliminated economic slavery so that the Jewish rulers did not employ the, the policy of government leasing. The heathen monarchs had their government leasing policy whereby the king owned all the land and the peasantry lived on the land and was working the land on a, on a, as a leaseholder in return for extremely high taxation that a percentage of the crop yield would go to the king because after all it was the king's land. That would not be true in Judea. It's not the king's land. Uh, Maybe it is, but you get to work the land and have private ownership in return for agreeing to military service. So conscription, which the Hasmoneans never really had trouble uh, doing. They always were able to raise an army of Jews. How could they do that? Answer, you got land and you had private ownership in return for your willingness to be a citizen, a fighting citizen of the state. So no shirking the draft. Um... Did they serve on an as-needed basis, unlike the Romans who had 20-year terms in the service? It was a lifetime uh, service. But it was like the National Guard. I mean, when you were called up or you were were in the army, 100%, 100% of the time... No, no. So so you were in the army... um, There was a small core of a standing army that was, you know, lifers. But the vast bulk of the population was conscripted in time of conflict. Uh, and there were three episodes of that in the reign of Hyrcanus. As soon as he takes over in 134, when there's a fight against Antiochus VII, then again in 131-29, when they fight against the Parthians, which we'll see in a minute, then again in 128, um, 
in the conquest of regions in, in the vicinity of Eretz Israel, and then again in 113 to 109, the conquest of the Samaritan regions. So there were, there were times of war and times of peace. And if you weren't in the standing army, you were not in the army in time of peace. Okay. So, but even though the Hasmoneans did allow for private ownership of property, they nonetheless retained a significant amount for themselves. So, for example, Jonathan had received the city of Ekron from Alexander Ballas, which means the whole city is his private property. Simon had a palace at Jericho, where he was assassinated. The balsam plantations uh, in the vicinity of the Dead Sea, near Ein Gedi, were also owned by the king. That was a holdover from the days when the Seleucid monarchs owned it privately. Uh, Hyrcanus took for himself the Jezreel Valley, and Alexander Yanai took the royal mountain, Turmalka, which is to the south of Jerusalem. So every king uh, had his own you know, pet spot that he loved, that was his private uh, domain, plus whatever was owned by your father and grandfather. So that the Hasmonean private uh, lands were substantial. They could not be ignored, and that was a way for them to generate revenue, because if you lived on private Hasmonean land, then you had to pay onerous taxes. If you lived on your own land, then you didn't have to pay um, uh, 50% of the yield or 25% of the yield. Okay. Did you say Ekron? Ekron, yeah. Yeah, basically in the same area. Okay. It was one of the five Philistine cities, the, the, the northeasternmost of the Philistine cities. So, taxation did change from the time of the Seleucid monarchs to the Hasmonean independence. Since they were no longer under foreign rule, the Jews did not have to pay a crown tax. What is a crown tax? So, originally, the crown tax was a voluntary contribution, if you want to call it voluntary. Uh, of an actual crown whenever a new monarch took the throne. And that crown had better be bejeweled with all sorts of expensive items. And it cost a lot, a lot of money. And who paid for it? The citizenry of a given province. And it was, it was, a, it was a difficult tax to deal with because you never knew when it was going to happen. You never knew when one uh, um, king is going to be assassinated, have his head chopped off, and his stepbrother take over. And then all of a sudden you have to pay another crown tax when you just paid one a year ago. Uh, there is, um, uh, the irregularity of it was very troubling. If you have a Jewish king, can a Jewish king charge a crown tax on fellow Jews? No, because the whole idea is that the people are sovereign and that you don't have a foreign overlord anymore. So no more crown tax. That's a good thing. Also no more land tax, which is the percentage of the crop yield, unless you live on the, on the king's private estate. But for most people, there was no land tax. So how did they raise money? And they needed money. Uh, not for a bloated federal bureaucracy, but for uh, uh, an army and other functions of state. So one way was customs. There was a significant amount of foreign trade, as well as caravans that passed through the country. And every time there was someone passed through, there was an impost, uh, 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 a customs tax. But also there was a poll tax. What kind of poll tax am I talking about? How do we call that in halacha? Machzid shekel. So last week we discussed, or maybe two weeks ago, the origins of Machatzira Shekel. It's not in the Torah. Simple as that. It's not in the Torah. It's also not in the Tanakh, because in the Tanakh you have, in the days of Nechemiah, the third of the Shekel, the third of the Persian silver Shekel, which weighed approximately 1.83 grams, as has been determined by the numismatists and the uh, experts in, metal, in uh, metals. So 1.83 grams was the third of the, of the shekel paid from the days of Nehemiah for the next several hundred years. 
But the sacrifices themselves, which supposed to be, were supposed to be paid for by the Matzirah Shekel according to the Halacha, were in fact paid for by foreign kings. The, only, the first king not to volunteer that was Demetrius in the year 150. So we speculated that at some point between the, the Hanukkah story and Demetrius, there was this notion that Jews themselves had to pay for the sacrifices through some mechanism, call it Machatzirah Shekel, and it no longer was a foreign king. Well, we know for a fact that, it, that by the latest, the days of Yanai, but probably in the days of Hyrcanus, there really was Machatzira Shekel. And how much was it? Well, it's a Tyrian half shekel, which is 7.2 grams of silver. That's a fourfold increase over the 1.83 grams of the Nehemia period. So, a tremendous increase in the, the raw amount of precious metal being taken from every Jew. What do you do with it? Well, yes, you pay for the sacrifices, but if, you're, if you've learned Tractate Shekalim, Masechet Shekalim, the Mishnah, you'll know that a lot more than just the animals, the, the, go- the goats and the calves, are paid for by the Machzid shekel. The leftover coins go for the building of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, aqueducts, also, and I don't mean the racetrack, uh, all sorts of public works in the city of Jerusalem and in the interest of the wider nation. So this wasn't an exclusively religious matter, it really was a national matter. Okay. Now, Hyrcanus uh, took over because he survived a bloody coup attempt by his brother-in-law, Ptolemy. At the end of last week's class, we mentioned that Simon was invited by his son-in-law, Ptolemy, to a gathering at Jericho, and that uh, from behind the curtains, uh, like in a Shakespearean style, uh, the goons came out and stabbed Simon and two of his sons. Okay. And... Other goons were sent to conquer the temple, but they failed. And other goons were sent to Gazara uh, to assassinate John Hyrcanus, who was stationed there as the chief of the army, and he found out ahead of time and had the would-be assassins themselves uh, killed. Okay, but that didn't end the story, because Hyrcanus wants to avenge his father's death, like Inigo Montoya, all right? So he wants to avenge his father's death. And Ptolemy ran away to the fort at Dagon, and he placed Hyrcanus' mother, who was still alive, on the outside of the wall of the fortress, subjecting her to horrible torture, and threatening her with death if the uh, besieging army of Hyrcanus would not walk away. So if you're Hyrcanus, what do you do? Do you walk away and and maybe your mother lives, or do you continue the siege and see her uh, horribly tortured and die? Okay, so we had a similar circumstance last week when Jonathan was captured by uh, um, the, 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 this, by Demetrius too, and the question by no by Trifon by Trifon, and um, the question is does Simon give over two sons uh, as hostages in return for Jonathan, or does he think it's a bluff, it's a trick, and they're all going to die? And what did we say? That he knew it was a trick, but he did it anyway, lest anyone accuse him of not trying hard enough to secure the release of his brother. So what does uh, Hyrcanus do in this case with his mother's suffering? answer is that um, he, lifts, he lifts the siege. He gives up the siege and he allows uh, his brother-in-law Ptolemy to uh, have a means of escape. This, and Ptolemy does escape to Rabat Bnei Amon, to Amman in, in Transjordan. But despite that, despite giving him the, the escape route, the mother was killed, and so were the brothers. So nobody, nobody survives these stories. Uh, the rule of thumb is they're all going to die in the end, um, sadly. So in the first year of his reign, 
which was a sabbatical year, Antiochus VII put a siege around Jerusalem. Antiochus, realizing that uh, the in-house coup among the Hasmoneans has weakened them to an extent and renders them uh, vulnerable, goes in for the kill and tries to conquer the territory. Because remember, the Seleucids never consented to Hasmonean independence, which, which occurred about eight years earlier when, when Simon uh, took the reins. The Jews took advantage of the chaos that was in the Seleucid Empire, declared themselves basically independent, and were, you know, were living their lives. But from the standpoint of the Syrians, no, no, this is just a rebellious province, and we're going to retake it. So they come on in, besiege Jerusalem, and it's a Shemitah year, which means what is in short supply? Food. So, uh, Jerusalem's running out of food, and Hyrcanus doesn't know what to do with himself. He's got a large population in the city of Jerusalem that he can't feed. What defines large? Wow. It's impossible for us to know, but I would suspect somewhere around 50,000. Um, that, that seems to have been the, the, the high population of Jerusalem until the late Second Temple period, when it may have been double that. Um, so, 50,000 people, or roughly thereabout, you can't feed them what do you do with them? So he kicks them out of the city. The non-combatants who can't wield a weapon, so the women and children and the like, or the enfeebled, are forced out of the gates of the city during the this, this summer, or the late summer, of the Shemitah year, with a ring of enemy soldiers surrounding the city. What's going to happen to them? Okay, so Antiochus seven is not interested in a mass slaughter. He's not interested in that. But he's also not interested in giving the, uh, the government with inside, inside the city a way of um, reducing its population. So the besieging army says, you're stuck in no man's land. You can't come any forward. We're not going to kill you, but you can't step forward. So they have no choice but try to get back into the sea and hope there'll be some crumbs of bread for them. In the end, there's a truce. There's a truce. It's declared over the holiday of, of Sukkot. Uh, the Hasmoneans are always big fans of the Sukkot holiday. And the people go back into the city. Antiochus gives a big gift of sacrifices to be brought on the altar. And eventually, after the holiday is over, there's a permanent deal that is reached. And this permanent deal was not favorable to the Jews, but also not terrible. It was not nearly as bad as some of the devastation wrought by, by Antiochus IV uh, in the years preceding the Hanukkah miracle. That was bad. That's the abolition of Judaism, idols in the temple, a lot of dead, a lot of dead Jews in the street. That's as bad, about as bad as it gets. This was not that bad. But it wasn't good either. What were the details? So number one, the Jews have to surrender, surrender their weapons. So the, the government is taking away your guns. Secondly, the taxes must be remitted for cities beyond the old Judean borders. This is a key point. Remember, the old Judean borders were fairly small, but they had grown much larger because of Hasmonean conquests. So any city that had been a Syrian city and not a Jewish city, but was now nominally under Jewish rule, the, the Jewish state would have to submit taxes uh, for those cities. That's a tremendous amount of money. Revenue that could have been going to the coffers in Jerusalem is now going to be uh, coughed up by Jerusalem and going to Antioch. Next point. 
um, there is recognition of Seleucid sovereignty over Judea. This is an abstract point. It's not a, it's not a, a real substantive point. But at the emotional level, it's damaging because once you've secured independence, and it's like uh, if after the, the partition plan in 1947, they would have reneged on it and gone for a trusteeship in 1948, you know, the, which, almost, which almost happened. So from a Zionist point of view here, you had independence in your, in, in your grasp, and then it's grabbed away from you. That's um, not a good thing. It's, it's emotionally devastating. Also, payment of 500 talents of silver. Also, hostages taken, presumably has many in children, which was the style of the time. And lastly, the battlements of Jerusalem were destroyed, so that if there were subsequent sieges around the city, it would be more difficult to defend the city. Okay, th- those were the terms of the deal. Um, in addition to that, Hyrcanus had to promise Antiochus that in Antiochus's next international campaign, which would be against the Parthians in the east, that he, uh, uh, Hyrcanus, would supply Jewish troops to fight in that war. How many Jewish troops? A few thousand. And in fact, he does. So... Give them food? Uh, they had... Yeah, 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 yeah. The, f- the food problem was resolved. The siege was lifted and every, you know, nobody starved. Right? Generally, people didn't starve. So with all this in mind, you could understand why... Antiochus had, uh, not Antiochus, why Hyrcanus had many internal enemies. There were a variety of reasons to dislike him. Number one, he submitted to a tough truce deal with the Seleucids. That if you're uh, politically uh, strong-minded, you'd say he sold out for, for a bad deal. He should have negotiated for a better deal. That's one point. Secondly, the countryside was devastated economically. The uh, the peasantry in the province of Judea did very w- w- was suffering from you know, poor crop yield and, and, and ravaged land in the early one, in, in the early years of Hyrcanus's reign throughout the the 130s. Also, he sold out the non-combatants of Jerusalem. If you're a, a woman or a child or a, uh, the elderly or uh, someone who couldn't have a, hold a weapon, and you were kicked out of the city basically on the brink of death, thinking that you were going to die because the enemy was going to slaughter you, and then by luck of the deal, you, you ended up living, to tell, the, to, to tell the story. Are you going to like that king, or that leader of the Jews? Who, no, you're going to hate his guts. Okay. Also, he fought for the enemy in subsequent battles. In the war against the Parthians, here you have Hyrcanus and a Jewish legion fighting for the, the guys who had been your, your mortal enemy three years earlier. Also, he left the country. He was away from the country in times of crisis. It's like pulling a de Blasio. You know, he's, he's out of town. So, uh, uh, Chris Christie, he's, he's, never, he's never in his own jurisdiction. He's a thousand miles away in Parthia fighting a war that isn't our war, and we have problems back at home. And you call yourself a leader in the Kohen Gadol? Uh, oh, so they were supplied with weapons by, by the Syrians, yeah. And... Uh, Lastly, he plundered David's tomb. David's tomb had a supply of precious metals that was used to pay the bribe, the 500 talents of silver, and also was subsequently used to hire foreign mercenaries. Now, why did he hire foreign mercenaries? David's tomb. David's tomb was just south of the city. That's what we know today. No. All right, so it's in the vicinity, but we don't really know exactly where it was. We don't 
What did they know? They did know. They had to have known because they got real, real gold and silver out of it. They could, you, you, today you can make it up because the only thing that's on the line is whether somebody davened Shmon in the right spot. But what's on the line is I need gold and silver, you better get the right spot. Okay? Um, so why did he hire foreign mercenaries? Answer. There weren't enough able-bodied Jews to fight the Hasmonean wars, whether wars against enemies in the Holy Land to conquer territory, or wars on behalf of the Seleucid king, after the devastation of 134. There's simply... Okay, so that's what he did, simply because there weren't enough Jews who were of age and of uh, physical strength to do it after a a rough time. Okay, so... That's why things were rough in the beginning. But things improved dramatically. And why do they improve? Because if the, if the Goyim are having a bad time, the Jews are having a good time. And, if the, and vice versa. So in, in the war against the Parthians, Antiochus VII died in 129. And the Seleucid monarchy went into very, very steep decline. Contenders for the throne fought bitterly for the next two decades until roughly the year 111, from 129 to 111. This is 111 on which side? BCE, BCE. Uh, up until this point, I've mentioned a whole lot of names, whether it's a Demetrius 1 or 2, Alexander Ballas, Antiochus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 and 7. We're not going to mention names at this point because there are too many of them in the next two decades and they don't really matter from a Jewish point of view. The only thing that matters is that there are several people at any one time who are contenders to the throne and that chaos gives an opening for the vassal states, Judea included, to assert their independence. Not just Judea, the Nabataeans as well. Um, and the Idumeans until they're conquered. Who, so, is the, who is the major domo in the world at that particular... So Rome is on, is on the ascendancy. They're really the most important power in the world. And they have their eyes, they're chopping at the bit to eat the Seleucid dynasty. Eat the Middle East. Eat the Middle East. And they will eventually do that. Uh, the Seleucids were like the Ottoman Empire, like the dead man of Europe. Um, they, they, they survived longer than they should have, but they were very, very weak in their last few decades. So... During their period of weakness, the Jews are able to assert themselves. Hyrcanus understands this immediately, and he decides to take, a, uh, to take on a campaign of territorial conquest. So he takes Medva in the east, on the Transjordan, uh, uh, on the east side of the river, which, by the way, historically had Jewish population. In biblical times, was the Ruven God and Chatzim Menashe. But even in Second Temple times, there were Jews on the east side of the river. If you remember, when we discussed the Hanukkah story, that in the immediate aftermath of the, of the rededication of the Temple, Judah and his brothers were worried that the Goyim were going to start executing Jews who live in regions beyond the borders of Yehuda including the Galilee and the, the coastal cities and in Transjordan. So what did they do? They went and rescued people. Uh, they sent in brothers to, to go rescue them and bring them closer to Jerusalem. Well, there were still Jews who lived in these out-of-the-way places, and Hyrcanus is interested in conquering them and incorporating them into, into the borders of the state. So he conquers Medva in the east, he conquers eventually Shechem in the north, and Adora and Marisa in the south, and certain coastal cities. He forces the Idumeans to circumcise. This is a very important point for a few reasons. Number one, what was the religious legitimacy of this act? Okay, so bear in mind that the halakha of conversion 
as we know it, it appears in the Talmud, is of later vintage. It didn't exist at that time. Okay, it's a machlokis, Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Eliezer, about what are the essential ingredients of a conversion. Must you go to the mikvah? Must you have bris milah? This is in Mesechta Yevamos, and also in... Um, I forget where else, but it's in Yevamos. Uh, I think 24a. So, the question is, can you force someone to adopt a Jewish religious identity. And in the, the, the rabbinic halacha, the key ingredient that is non-ceremonial but is intellectual and, and, and abstract is the kabbalat or mitzvot, the acceptance of the burden of the commandments, which obviously must be done of one's own volition. It cannot be imposed upon someone. You can force them at the butt of a rifle to say, don't, don't eat treif or I'll kill you, but that doesn't mean that they have, in their mind, accepted the, the, the burden of divine commandments. So, uh, this is very dubious. Secondly, has it ever been done before? Answer is, no. So there's no precedent. Thirdly, is it a smart idea? Or will there be repercussions down the road that are unfavorable? And the answer is, of course, that there are ne- very negative repercussions because the Herodian dynasty emerges from Idumia. That Herod's father, Antipater, was one of the prominent, prominent Idumians and worked his way, he conned his way into the Judean government as the, uh, the right-hand man of Hyrcanus II, who is the grandson of this Hyrcanus I. And is able to steer all power into the hands of his own family, who were Jewish by religion, although not much by practice, but not Jewish by ethnic identity. And uh, will lead to disaster in the, in, in the end of the, the pre-common era and the beginning of the common era. So, although Hyrcanus thinks it's a good idea at the moment, down the road we know in hindsight it was a disaster. Okay, so when we get to Herod, we'll discuss why did he refurbish the temple, and the basic answer is going to be that he has to curry favor with the, with the general population on some religious national matter to make up for the fact that he's a butcher who killed a lot of people, and will otherwise be extremely unpopular. Well, butcher a lot of people, that's an understatement, unfortunately. Uh, understatement, you're right, yeah. He massacred a lot of people, including his own family. I think that the older Rabbanon, except for a very few... Yeah, yeah. So... Um, the, the religious Jews, the pious, the Hasidim, were offended by some of the actions of Hyrcanus, especially his forcible conversion of non-Jews, which they thought was unacceptable, his raiding of the tomb of David as being sort of a breach of, uh, of, decent, of, of decency and you know, uh, respecting national shrines, um, and a few other reasons why they didn't like him. So, the, the pious regard Hyrcanus as no better than the old Hellenizers who predated uh, Judah Maccabee. Who am I referring to? Menelaus, Jason, the Tobiads, uh, Alchemus, all, all the, 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 the characters who we have trashed in previous lectures as having been bad leaders and bad Jews before the, the Maccabean victories, around the same time as the Maccabean victories. So this Hyrcanus, how is he any better than they were? His ancestors. That, that, that his ancestors were, were glorious and virtuous uh, uh, fighters on behalf of, of religious Judaism, the Torah and Am Yisrael, and he is, is a, a, a Hellenistic potent, 
uh, potentate. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's no better than a Seleucid king or Menelaus. Okay. Of course, if you say that to his face, what's he going to do to you? Well, we'll have to find out because someone does say it to his face. Okay. Um, in the later part of his tenure, he goes to war against the Samaritans. In 113, he uh, begins his campaign, eventually conquers uh, Shechem and Mount Grizim. It is assumed by archaeologists this happened around the year 109, the conquest of Mount Grizim, at which point in time he destroys the Samaritan temple. Why does he destroy the Samaritan temple? Well, first of all, he's the high priest of the Jerusalem temple, so it's a competitor. But be, uh, and so it's a natural ten- tendency to want to wipe out your competition. But beyond that, Hyrcanus understands that he has offended the pious Jews. And he'll do whatever he can, that's also in his better interest, to once again win over their, their, their favor. And in the eyes of the Hasidim, any Beit HaMikdash or, or, or sacrificial uh, site outside of Yerushalayim is inherently sinful. It's a violation of Devarim, of uh, God chooses one place and one place only. So, by destroying the, the, the Beit HaMikdash of the Shomronim, Hyrcanus wins brownie points with the, with the from Jews. Okay. Um, he also destroys Samaria, which had been the city of Samaria, which had been the Samaritan hometown prior to uh, 333 in Alexander's conquest before they moved to Grizim and to Shechem. How did he do that? It ha- Samaria had not been conquered in 800 years. It was the most fortified position in the entire Eretz Israel. But he was able to do it for, because he, had, number one, had better, for, stronger forces, um, uh, and also because he dug trenches underneath the mountain and filled it with water, and, and some of the uh, fortification collapsed. Uh, it, it, it melted away as torrents of water came rushing through. So his, his Army Corps of Engineers did an excellent job of undermining the physical defenses at Samaria. Who was he fighting against? Did the Samaritans have an army? No. So the Samaritans did not have an army, but Antiochus the Ninth. Can you believe it? There were nine Antiochuses? What happened to the eighth? He didn't have much of a tenure. <laughs> he got bumped off very quickly. So Antiochus the Ninth um, sent 6,000 soldiers to fight on behalf of the Samaritans. Why? Does he have uh, some love for the Samaritans? No. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And since the, the Antiochiades, uh, uh, at, uh, leading the Seleucid uh, Empire, never reconciled themselves to Hasmonean independence, they would do anything to subvert the Hasmonean conquests. And if that means siding with the Samaritans and defending Samaria, so be it. But they lost, and the Jews won. So these victories, everybody loves a winner. These victories uh, give legitimacy um, to Hyrcanus's reign in the eyes of the general public. When he's losing and everybody's hungry, they think he's terrible. When he's winning, then he has the, uh, the backing of the public. He may have offended some people religiously, but if, if you don't have a, a staunch religious opinion, you're just a, a Jew who's not a member of any sectarian group, then uh, as long as the good guys are winning, then fine, let this dynasty continue. Okay. Um, what else does Hyrcanus do to secure the growth of his country? Well, he relies upon foreign alli- alliances, international diplomacy. In 129, 
as he breaks free from uh, Antiochus seven and asserts his independence and begins to conquer territory, he sends an embassy to Rome to renew once again the alliances between the Jews and the Roman Senate. What's interesting is that this deal was concluded between the Roman Senate and what element of Jewish society? So if you remember back into the days of Judah Maccabee, Judah Maccabee was not the leader of the Jews, so he could not engage in diplomacy. It was the Council of Elders, the Jerusalem, whatever you want to call it, the Proto-Sanhedrin, who made the deal with the Romans. But that was in 161. And then again it was renewed in the days of Jonathan. Now the deal is with Hyrcanus, the high priest, in, uh, in cooperation with the Council of Elders, or the, um, the National Council, which tells us something interesting. Number one, it means Hyrcanus was not an absolute ruler. He had to consult with the Jerusalem on certain political matters. That he may have been primarily an ecclesiastical official, the high priest of the temple, and yes, he's the head of the army, but he does not hold uh, 100% political power. He has to play well with others and, and come to an agreement with uh, the, the National Council. It also says that other countries or other uh, city-states who might be inclined to um, make deals with the Jews have to recognize both institutions, the, the Jewish Senate, effectively, and the Hasmonean leader. You can't just have one without the other. Okay. Who else, aside from the, from the Roman Senate, wanted to deal with the Jews? The city-state of Athens, and, uh, as well as Sparta doesn't exist anymore, having been, been conquered by the Romans. Sparta had been an ally of the Jews, but is no longer. Um, so you have uh, also Ptolemaic Egypt. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids were historic rivals. They fought many, many wars, oftentimes over the fate of Eretz Israel, who, who, who controlled it. We haven't heard much about Egypt in the last couple of weeks. But Egypt has many, many Jews. So the, the Egyptian leadership, the, the Ptolemies, have an interest in not seeing their Jewish population hostile to the government. And how do you make Jews loyal? By being good to Israel. How does a congressman win Jewish votes? By making a trip and putting a note in the Kotel. So Ptolemaic Egypt has an interest in an alliance with Hyrcanus, who is on the rise and is a powerful force, and also because Hyrcanus is sticking it to the Seleucids, who are the classical enemies of the Ptolemies. And, the Jew, and from a, from a, from a Hasmonean point of view, it's a good idea to make sure that your southern border is not an enemy border, but rather it's a pacified border. And after the, after the Jews conquer Idumea and go into the Negev, what's the next place? The next place is Egypt, to the south and to the west. So if it's a friendly state and not a, a, a rival, then you can focus your attention on conquering more territory in the north. And defending yourself from enemies in the north, yeah. In which cities do they live in Egypt? Mostly Alexandria, but also in uh, Leontopolis and um, in what became Cairo. Um, the Nile Delta and Alexandria, basically. Yeah, uh, not in Upper Egypt, otherwise known as Southern Egypt. Uh, there had been an Elephantine years earlier, but that. Um, colony is long gone, and Jews don't live near the Nubian uh, uh, border. They're in 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 uh, northern Egypt. What century was that? Fourth. That was destroyed in 408. Okay. You know what impresses me about this? I never realized. Yeah. That <coughs> the armed forces were such a big Jewish profession for so many years. 
Absolutely. Did anybody do anything else? Well, they farmed the land. They farmed the land, and some people were, you know, raised small animals. Uh, and in the cities, there were, there were petty urban traders who made tchotchkes and sold them. But otherwise, people grow, they grew crops and they fought and killed people. I mean, that's... that's, that's hedge funds. Hedge funds, funds. yes. Yeah. All right. So, uh, that, that takes care of, of um, Hyrcanus' foreign entanglements. Now, as he's about to die, he realizes that he needs to figure out who will, repl- who will succeed him. Who is going to be uh, the high priest? Who is going to be the political leader? Who is going to be the military leader? Because there are many responsibilities that are all wrapped up into one person in his generation. But they need not be, full, uh, all, all those functions need not be filled by one man, or one woman for that matter. You could divide it up. And so he does. He decides that his son, Aristobulus, Aristobulus I, will be the high priest and that his uh, wife will be the political leader. His wife, who is younger than he is, will be the political leader. The son is the high priest and one of the other sons is going to be the head of the army. Okay. Well, it's, it's understandable that if you have a, a dynasty, leadership positions are going to remain within the family. But the question is which member of the family. So... Arist- Aristobulus. <coughs> no, 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 that they didn't no. do. We don't know. It's not recorded. Uh, oh, no, she, she is the wife of Aristobulus and then the wife of Yanai, after Yibum, if you want to call it Yibum. All right, so Aristobulus doesn't like this, and he puts his mother in prison and lets her starve to death. That's horrible. Um, some say it was his stepmother. It's a machlokis. It's a, <laughs> it's a machlokis, the historians. Josephus says one thing and some of the other materials say another. Okay. He puts his brothers in jail, except for Antigonus, who was his favorite brother, and who he allows to function as a co-regent. Um, Aristobulus... I wonder what he did to his mother-in-law. Well, we'll, we'll so the fact that they had Hellenistic names... Uh, indicates the extent to which the Hasmonean family has acculturated uh, since the days of Matityahu. Much to, you know, Zaidi would be rolling in his grave, this, okay. that sort of thing. And uh, not only did, did Yehuda, which was his Jewish name, have a, the Greek name Aristobulus, but he was known colloquially as Philhellene, the lover of things Greek. So he's known in, in the literature as Aristobulus I, because there was an Aristobulus II later on, but he's also known as Aristobulus Philhellene, the lover of Greek, the Greek things. His administration turned the country in a more Hellenistic direction, and although he didn't uh, flagrantly violate the laws of the Torah, he was not an especially frum guy. Um, and he was a murderer. So he takes on the conquest of additional territories. He takes uh, the Golan... Up, uh, the, well, the Galilee uh, past Beit Sha'an. Beit Sha'an had been taken by Hyrcanus, and then uh, Aristobulus takes the, 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 the Galilee and the Golan to Mount, Mount Hermon, basically up to the northern border of the current state of Israel, in the hopes that victory in war will mean the people will like him and support him, because everybody loves a winner. But also because he had a personality complex. He, he was always doubting himself. 
that he didn't have self-confidence because he was a weak, he was physically weak. And he also wasn't healthy. He would die a year into his reign. He only rules one year. It was a disastrous year, 104 to 103, but, it, but uh, only a very short time. Okay, so how does he die? And here we're relying upon Josephus, but maybe Josephus doesn't have it right, because he may have had uh, a, an agenda against this particular monarch and tell us a more ugly story than what really happened. But let's, let's, let's tell you what Josephus claims. That Aristobulus had a co-regent in, in uh, Antigonus. The other brothers were in jail. His wife, Salome Alexandra, was able, with her husband's declining health, to cobble together a coalition of cabinet members who basically ran the country. Like, you know, when Woodrow Wilson was, was, uh, was incapacitated and the wife ran the show. But, no, but nobody really knew about it outside of Washington. So, she, do, she does this, and she doesn't like her, her brother-in-law, Antigonus. And she probably doesn't even like her husband either. So she conspires to have Antigonus killed by telling Antigonus that her, her husband, Aristobulus, wants him, Antigonus, to appear in his new body armor at the, in the palace, in the, in the king's chamber. And she tells Aristobulus and his guards that Antigonus is hatching a plot to kill you. So what happens? He shows up in his body armor, and they thrust a spear through him, and he's dead. Okay, now... Antigonus actually loved his brother and sort of realized that this was a sinister plot by his wife to eliminate uh, the brother, and so he dies grief-stricken over what he did uh, to his own, uh, his own relative. Um, that's one version of the story. Another version of the story is simply that he died of natural causes and that Antigonus really did uh, intend to, to murder his brother and to take over, and that Salome was not some... Uh, you know, con- con- not 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 the leader of a conspiracy ring. This okay. is so much like Herod with Mariamne. Yes, they, they were making up plots and things like that. And uh, Stal- Stalin does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you make up you make up a pl- plot that doesn't exist as an excuse to kill a person. All right. Um, well, what what happens as a result of Aristobulus's death? His wife is in control. But she knows that a woman can't really hold the throne yet. Uh, she needs a husband. So she releases Yanai, or Yanai Alexander, uh, from jail, and she marries him. Are you allowed to marry your, your brother-in-law? Well, the answer is that in the halacha, in the law of the Torah, you're not allowed to unless it's in the context of Yibum. So did Aristobulus have any children? We don't believe so. There's no record of this, so let's assume that he didn't and that this was a lawful yibum. And so now, Salome Alexandra is the wife of Alexander Yanai, and they are king and queen. Who was Salome Alexandra? What is her background? A mystery. We don't really know. But somehow she emerged on the scene as the wife of two different kings and later will be the queen in her own right after Yanai's death and she'll run the country until her own death in the year 67. So for 40 years, for nearly 40 years, she uh, is a prominent figure in Judean life. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so the other question is, how did Hyrcanus... Was she a Jew? Yes, absolutely, she was a Jew. So she was contemporary with Herod? No. Herod died on the year four, and he lived 70 years. So he was around in the year... Well, he was was born when she, the year she died, something like that. Okay, so now the question is, what was Hyrcanus' relationship with the various factions within Judaism? Pharisees, Sadducees, and the like. 
couple of years ago when we did Pirkei Avot, we spent weeks and weeks discussing the origins of the Prushim and the origins of the Stukim. We're not going to do that in this, uh, this lecture series. But we have to understand the relationship those groups had to the power structure. And unfortunately here, there's a machlokis between uh, rabbinic literature and the other sources over when was the, the, the break between the proto-rabbis, the, the Prushim, and the Hashmonai dynasty. According to rabbinic literature, this break happens um, in the, at the end of J- John Herkinus's reign. The classic depiction of it is that Yochanan Kohen Gadol Shimesh Shana Ulvasof Duki. That John Herkinus, the high priest, served for eighty years, and in the end, he became a Sadducee. And the, the line in Pirkei Avot, which uh, is uh, used to support this contention, is Al Tamin Ad Yom Don't believe in yourself until the day you die, because you never know when you're going to go off the derech. That John Herkinus was a wonderful man, but he went off the derech in his later years. So that assumes that the, the falling out was in his time. Other sources indicate that the falling out was in the days of Yanai, his son, uh, maybe a good 20 years later. Uh, do we have to resolve this? Well, Evan Hoffman is not going to resolve this. Heinrich Gretz and the, and the big boys in the 19th century already fought about it a long time ago, and so we'll just leave it as we, we're not sure. But the famous story that appears both in the, in the historical literature and in the, in the literature of Chazal talks about a banquet that happens after a military victory in which some curmudgeonly figure in the back says to Hyrcanus, you know, you shouldn't be the king and the high priest. It's not right. Now, you could argue, well, why is it, why is it not right? Because maybe in the divine plan, those two offices were meant to be held by different people. That one is a, a Judahite office and one is a Levitical office. You can make that point. But no, that's not what the guy said. The guy said, the reason why you shouldn't occupy both offices is that you're not entitled to one of them. Which one of the two? You're, you're, you're an illegitimate holder of one of the two offices. Which one? Ah, so I knew you would say that. That's not what it says. You're an illegitimate holder of the office of high priest because you're an invalid Kohen. Why are you an invalid Kohen? What happened? So you could argue that, that, that a, a priest with blood on his hands should not duchen and not do the avoda. That's a strong argument. Okay, so, huh? He's illegitimate. He's an illegitimate, uh, illegitimate priest. Why is he illegitimate priest? Because his mother was taken captive by the heathens in the days of the Hanukkah story. So she's a zona. So she's a zona. Because the halacha is that a, 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 a woman who is raped, or for that matter, a woman who is taken hostage in time of war by the heathens and is in seclusion with non-Jews is assumed to have been raped, and a rape victim is allowed to return to her husband if, if the husband is a Yisrael. But if the husband is a Kohen, then even if it's Ba'ones, against her will, it's coercion, she is forbidden to him as a status of his own, of someone who had relations with a forbidden man. Therefore, the progeny are Halal and not Kohen. Which means that if Simon's mother, if Simon's wife was, was taken captive at that time, then Hyrcanus who was born roughly around the time of the Hasmonean uh, uh, Rebellion, would be an illegitimate Kohen. Not an illegitimate child, not a bastard child, not a mamzer, but a halal. And so thus he can't help be a Kohen Gadol because he's not even a Kohen. So, they investigate the matter. By the way, nobody says he can't be king because, because of, he's not a Judahite. That was not 
a serious issue. The notion that only the Bnei David, uh, uh, a descendant of, of, of David, the son of Jesse, that's a, 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 a rabbinic Jewish point of view, based upon passages in the Tanakh. But in Second Temple times, they really didn't focus on that. They didn't obsess over it. But as for the, the idea that he was not a valid Kohen, so they investigated it. How did they investigate it? They went back into the databases and for the, for the birth records. I don't know how they investigated it, but it says that they investigated it. And it turned out that this was just defamation. It was untrue. It was motzi shame ra. So now the question is, how do you punish that curmudgeon in the back row who, 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 who uh, defamed the king and high priest? What do you do to him? Okay, so, so the legend has it that the, king, that the, the, the high priest who, by the way, never, never took on the title of king. I should clarify. John Herkinus never, ever referred to himself as Melech by that title. He was, in effect, the king, but he never had the title. Like his father, he only had Rosh or Nagid or Nasi or Sar, those kind of titles. Never Melech. Aristobulus is the first one to use the title of king, which is all the more reason to hate him and to think that he was a bad guy. Because, you know, he's the first one. It's a chutzpah of him to do it. But, so Herkinus, he says to the Pharisees, what do I do with this guy? How do I punish him? And they're supposed to say, chop his head off. But they don't. What's the Pharisaic attitude towards capital punishment? What's the Mishnah in Sanhedrin? What is the Mishnah in Sanhedrin? Once in seven years, once in 70 years, Rabbi Akiva says, if I were in the Sanhedrin, they'd never execute anybody because I'm against the the death penalty, because I'm a a Democrat, a liberal. That was the Rabbanus, but didn't they move that over to the Malthus to execute? Okay, so... It's a division of labor. Uh, yes, real, real criminals, real killers who couldn't be executed judicially were, 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 were killed extrajudicially by the, the, under the auspices of the king or under the auspices of the Roman authorities later. But the Pharisees say, give the guy corporal punishment. Give him a couple of smacks with, with, with a whip. No, don't beat him to death. Just beat him a little bit. And, and so, huh? Uh, well, maybe, pachot me'abayim. Uh, so, as a, so as a result, Hyrcanus is very upset by this, and according to the legend, he begins to side with the Sadducees in all sectarian issues because he feels that the Pharisees are against him. And he begins to in- institute anti-Pharisaic measures and rejecting their halachic uh, conclusions. This is the rabbinic literature? This is, uh, 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 both. both rabbinic literature and Josephus have a version of this story, of the same story. But they wrote all this centuries later. Okay, but let's assume that this story has a, a kernel of truth, that late in the Hyrcanus period, there was a falling out with the Pharisees over matters of politics. Not, not so much religion, but politics leads the, the Kohen Gadol to side religiously with a different faction. Okay, you join a different shul, you take on a different minhagen. Okay, so that's what the, we, it says about how they had a falling out. What does the rabbinic literature say favorably about John Harkness? That he was a participant in the evolution of the halakha. Remember, a couple of weeks back I said that the Hashmonai dynasty is a political dynasty and has very little to do with the transmission of Torah. That the, the, the zugot, the five pairs of elders, who are mentioned in Pirkei Avot in chapter 1, are non-politicians. They are just scholars who, generation after generation, transmit uh, the corpus of the law, and that the, the kings have nothing to do with it. But that's not entirely true. According to rabbinic literature, Yochanan Kohen Gadol was involved in certain halakhic decisions, and I will read them to you. This is a Mishnah in... Um, 
Actually, before I do that, there's a Tosefta in Sota that says, Yochan Kohen Gadol Shama Davar Mibet Kodesh HaKodashim. What does that mean? He was doing the Avodah. Shama Davar. What does that mean? He heard something. He heard something. What did he hear? God's voice. Go the distance. If you build it, he will come. What did he hear? God's voice. So he heard Nitzachon. There will be a victory at Antioch. Not involving the Jewish army. Involving some sort of uh, internal Seleucid matter. And what happened? The Katvu Otosha'a, the Otoayom, they wrote down the day and the hour that he heard the voice. And then when the newspapers arrived a few months later with the news, the Kivnu Otosha'a, it was at that very moment when the voice was heard that the battle was won by the side that, that, Her- that Hyrcanus was told would win. What does this mean? That Hyrcanus has what? Ruach HaKodesh, prophetic spirit, something. Spies. So, spies, but yeah, but how would he know? Uh, so, Josephus, in describing the greatness of John Hyrcanus, because Josephus loves the Maccabean dynasty, since they are his ancestors, he says that John Hyrcanus had charismatic messianic traits and the gift of prophecy. So here's an example where rabbinic literature contains an element, a hint, of the same thing that Josephus had. Prophecy. Shama Davar, he heard something. Okay, that's just to, to, to tell you that he was a good guy, at least in the eyes of some people, if we're going to say he was a prophet. But what about Halacha? So Mishnah in Masya Shani says the following. Yochan Kohen Gadol, Hevir Hodayot. Yochanan the high priest, he abolished the confessions. The confessions over tithes. Uh, what, are the, what are the confessions over tithes? The Vidwe Ma'aser. So it's in the, the book of, Deutera, uh, of Devarim, where, where, where you have to say, um, after the third and sixth year of the sabbatical cycle, that uh, I didn't eat, eat Ma'aser when I was a, a, a mourner, I, didn't, uh, rem- I removed it at the proper time, I didn't eat it while impure. Various uh, statements that you have to say about how you handled the, the tithes. He abolished that because people were not separating tithes and handling them in the manner prescribed by the Torah. So how could you, in, in good faith, make these declarations when they're really false? So he, that's one thing. A halachic decision, no more vidur and maiser. Second thing, afhu uh, bitel et He abolished those who were doing who were the me'orarim. What are the me'orarim? What is... Uh, the shoresh... Ayn Vav Resh, or Ayn Resh Hey, actually. The one who wakes people up, the Orer. Um, so, who is waking up whom? People were waking up God. In the Beit HaMikdash, Psalm 44 was part of the liturgy, in which they would say, Uru, Uru uh, the, 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 the heavenly host should wake up. And what did Yochanan Kohen Gadol say? That this is blasphemous. Because he shomer Yisrael. There's no sleep and slumber before the Almighty. So uh, theologically, it sounds more appropriate. Then it says he abolished the nokfim. Who are the nokfim? Lenakef. What is lenakef? To, to really to, to to smack something over the head. What what would happen was in the temple you had to slaughter a lot of animals, including fairly large animals. Now, I'm not a shochet, and I've never really watched this happen in the slaughterhouse, but it's not an easy thing to get the animal to cooperate. 
So what would they do in the old days? They would smack. They take a billy club and smack the animal over the head, and uh, and blood and blood basically to taste it. Yeah, uh, blood would go into the eye, so the animal couldn't see. It was uh, you know rendered not unconscious but disoriented. Um, so what did Yochanan Kohen Gadol say? How long are you going to serve trephus on the, on, on the mizbeach? That the animal is going to be a trefa. It's going to have an internal wound that, that, would, that would cause it to be invalid. So don't do this. Instead, how do you immobilize the animal? With the tabaot. What are the tabaot? What is a tabat? A ring. So there were 24 rings on the floor of the azara where they would stick the neck of the animal into the ring and it couldn't move and you would do the slaughter. Okay. Also, the uh, adyamav... Up until his generation, the patish, the hammer, was banging in, in Jerusalem. What's wrong with the hammer banging in Jerusalem? The blacksmith, the silversmith, you know, uh, they have to do their work. You're allowed to do work six days a week. Answer is, are you allowed to work in Cholomoid? According to Torah law, the answer is yes. I mean, in the Gemara, they, they quote Psukim, which are probably a smachta ba'alma, just scriptural allusions to a ban on labor. But the basic reading of the text is that on day two through six of Pesach and two through seven of Sukkot, you're allowed to work. But he abolished that. He instituted the ban on labor in Cholamoid. And the last thing, and the most important thing, is... In his generation, a person no longer had to ask about demai. What is demai? Demai is produce purchased from an Amharitz, from a non-religious Jew or a non-literate Jew. What's the concern? That the, pro- the appropriate tithes, truma, maser, maser, sheni, have not been removed, and that the, 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 article, the, the food item you're buying is tevel, and thus forbidden from being consumed. So up until that generation, when you bought produce from an Amaretz, you had to ask questions and hope they were telling you the truth. Or ask questions of someone who was a little bit more reliable than the seller themselves. Then Yochanan Kohen Gadol made a decision, after having toured the countryside and examined how religious the, the average person was, that the average person did separate Truma Gadola because they thought that the sin of not doing that was horrific and you could die from it. But the average person was not separating subsequent tithes. So Maser Rishon, Trumas Maser, and Maser Ani Yersheni were not being removed. Therefore, what do you have to do? You have to designate Maser Rishon, set aside Trumas Maser from the Maser Rishon and give it to a Kohen. Then the remainder of the Maser Rishon you could eat because although it belongs to a Levi, no Levi could prove that it's his. And Hamotzi Mechaveru Alav... Haraya, you have to prove that it belongs to you, otherwise you can't take it. And as for Maserani, the poor man, the same thing, can't prove that it's his. So basically, you just have to give Trumas Maser and do it like a, a shenanigans with the Maserishon. But that was uh, instituted by Yohan Kohen Gadol, g- given his concern for the Levitical tithes. Historically, is this accurate? I have no way of knowing, but let's assume that it is. Why would he do it? Well, number one, he was a legitimately religious man. But also, it's to the benefit of the Kohanim. And he's a Kohen. So you always have to follow the money. Uh, So we'll stop here.